Hi everyone, welcome to the next episode of Rich Reflex. For this week, I am so excited and honored to have you know a good friend, a mentor, Bill Burnett here with us today. Hi, Bill. Hi, how are you? It's so good to be I'm here. I'm so good, and I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so excited to be with you today. To those of us who've been following the Rich Reflex community for a while, you would know that Bill is no stranger. Uh, last year, he very generously did a workshop virtually online for a lot of us on designing your life. Right. So, Bill is widely known for his best-selling book, Designing Your Life, which I also have it signed here, which really revolutionized the way we approach personal development by applying design principles to our lives. This innovative approach has also helped so many people around the world navigate career transitions, discover their passions, and also create lives that align with our purpose and values. So your follow-up book, Designing Your Work Life, further delves into the application of design thinking principles to be able to improve our work experiences and foster a sense of purpose in the professional realm. So Bill, welcome again to the show. Um, for those of us who are new to you, could you share with us a little bit about yourself and what you do and what you're so passionate about? Sure, sure. Um, well, the Designing Your Life class started back in 2007 when I got together with Dave Evans, the guy I write books with, and we were just trying to figure out how to help our students launch. You know, Stanford students are smart, but they don't know anything. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, they're not, they don't know about the world. And so we just put together a small class for that. And that really exploded. Now there's classes for freshmen and sophomores and, and seniors. And now even for the MBA students and graduate students. And, and Dave teaches in a program for people who are retiring called mm. the Distinguished Career Institute at Stanford. People come back to Stanford for a gap year for grown-ups and try to figure out how to reboot. I was always a curious kind of weird kid. I liked to draw a lot and I liked to, um, you know, have, I had lots of, you know, drawing and fantasy worlds and things that I created. And then I was also interested in science mm. and, and engineering and math. So when I got to Stanford, there's this really cool program called Product Design, which is engineering plus psychology plus art plus anthropology. It's really cool. It's really broad. So I, I found my I found my people. I found my thing. Yeah, tribe. And, you know, I tribe, yeah. And then I, when I graduated, my first job was designing Star Wars toys. Amazing. And I got to do the first, second movie and the third movie. And then I got to work on Raiders of the Lost Ark. Wow. And it's so crazy because the new, the last Raiders movie is just coming out, and it was 41 years ago. <laughs> I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm <laughs> wow. so old. But then I got a chance to do startups, and I was mm -hmm. at Apple for a bunch of years. Mm -hmm. um, but all along that time, I had been teaching because we like to have practitioners teach in our program. And then in 2006, um, after a bunch of you know part-time teaching experiences, David Kelly called me up. David's the guy who started IDEO. Mm -hmm. The big, uh, you know, international yes. innovation consulting firm, and he st was just starting the D School, our our institute at Stanford, and he said, "Hey, would you know you've been teaching a lot uh, part time? Would you ever thought about coming in full time?" So in 2006, I took a full time job as the executive director of the undergraduate and the graduate program. Um, so I was running the programs I graduated from, which was really fun. <laughs> and then I was, um, and then we were making them better. We were really improving them yeah. and really kind of expanding them. And, and this idea of design thinking was just taking hold all around the world. And then, yeah, and then 2007, Dave and I said, well, isn't your life, is, you're designing your life, mm -hmm. like your future, isn't that like designing a new product? I mean, nobody knows what the new product's going to be, so we have to prototype, we have to start with empathy. Because uh, I spend a lot of time teaching designers how to design things, like iPhones and Macintoshes and, and websites and stuff. 
But it's the same principle because when you're trying to invent something new, you can't use your typical engineering principles because you don't have any data, right? Mm. It's new. It's brand new. It's never been done before. When Dave and I wrote the first book, it came out in 2016, a lot of other universities called us and mm. said, hey, this is cool. Can we do it? And we said, sure. And so we put together a program. We, we basically give the curriculum away to any school who wants it. And we've got about 350 universities now teaching the class all over the world. We now have the Designing Your Life Institute uh, Limited of Singapore. It's a nonprofit registered. We launched it last week. It seems like the universe wants people to design their lives. And it's I'm true. just helping it's you know, true. Yeah. And we're so grateful for the work that you and Dave do. I think for sure it has really trickled into Asia and this part of the world where mm. we, I think a lot of us are also becoming a lot more intentional about creating the life that we want and we're created in the first place to even live and do. You know, absolutely. And, and um, I teach at a research university, so we, we track a lot of research and the stuff in the book is all based on research. But but one of the things is that particularly this generation is the most purpose-driven generation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and the generation that doesn't just, I mean, making money is great, but they don't want to just make money. They want to make some impact. And so my students, it's interesting. If you, you know, I've been teaching for a while. So back in the 90s, early part of the 2000s, my students all wanted to do startups. They mm -hmm. want to make money. And now my students are, are more like, no, I want to be, I want to do impact. I want to do something in the social. Yeah, you know, social, giving back uh, to. A social entrepreneur. Yeah. I want to, I want to, you know, create solutions for problems. I want to, I want to build organizations that are healthy. I think the the Gen Z's and stuff get a little bit of a reputation of being, you know, difficult to manage or not, not, you know, like doing what they're supposed to do to just, you know, do the right thing. But that's not it at all. I, you know, my students will work. 100-hour weeks on something they're passionate or excited about or that they believe in. But mm. you, you but you got to be able to connect the job to something bigger than just money. Yeah. Um, and for a lot of older uh, managers, workers, managers and, and, and people who run companies, you know, who've been on this treadmill of just money, success, money, success, money, success, they, they misunderstand, I think, mm. the Gen Z's. Um, desire to have a meaningful life but you know i think it's also it's kind of part of our times i mean look at all the issues we face mm. climate change you know the the racial unrest in the u.s um we've got you know uh wars again in europe we've got you know failed states we've got we've got a energy crisis we have a population crisis i mean if you're a young person today and you're smart and capable, you want to work on hard problems. Mm. You don't want to just get a job, yeah. you know, regular old job and yeah. be a worker. Yeah. Um, now, you know, when you're young and you don't have a family yet, it's more about your personal impact. Um, but we work with a lot of folks who are, you know, they're 30s and 40s and families and houses and mortgages and all the other things that come along with it. Designing your life is, is really for any age. Yeah. We started out particularly because I have a, a real soft spot in my heart for the young students who are graduating into the world right now and trying to find their way in a way that's meaningful. I wanted to ask you also, having been someone who has seen, you know, and also guided students through the different generations so far, what are some key trends or differences that you have seen besides the fact that today, you know, what people are looking for yeah. is beyond just working for money? Yeah. One fun part of my, my job job is I get to work with 18 to 22 year olds all the time, right? Yeah. They just, they just keep coming. Mm -hmm. They seem to get younger and younger. I don't know why. <laughs> I, I'm the same age. I feel like I'm the same age. But, you know, when I started teaching in 84, they were 20, 
18 to 22. And, and now there's, and they're still 18 yeah. to 22. And I'm, you know, I'm at least 41 years older, if, according to the uh, <laughs> uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark book. So my grad students, you know, have worked a little bit. They come back to grad school to get a master's degree in design. So they're 26, 27, 28. They are completely different than the 18-year-olds. Hmm. Like the 18-year-olds, it's all TikTok and, you know, and social media, it's just TikTok the latest, and, and the latest yeah. stuff. And I'm always asking, hey, what do you got? What do you got in your phone? Show me, show me, show me. And then I put it on my phone. And then, mm. we, you know, I was Snapchatting with so Evan. One of Bill's students <laughs> was Evan Spiegel, uh, the founder of Snapchat. Snapchat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and when they first started, it was called Peekaboo. And, yeah. But anyway, so, so I get to stay young because mm. I get to see what my students are work, using. And like the grad students don't know anything about, about TikTok. Yeah. And they're only eight, six, seven years older, you know. So these things are happening so fast. But in terms of, you know, general trends, um, there is the trend towards social entrepreneurship versus mm. just making money. This is really probably the loneliest generation we've ever educated. This wow. is the most uh, anxious generation. The Surgeon General of the U.S., the head of the, you know, the U.S. healthcare system, said last month that the number one healthcare problem in America is social media. Wow. Not, not diabetes, not, not heart drugs. attacks or anything else. It's yeah. social media mm. because it's creating this, this, this sort of place of loneliness and alienation and constantly feeling like you're being compared to somebody else. And um, and the negative impacts on young young people, particularly my my students, are really significant. So you know, this is the highest rate of depression and anxiety we've had on campus. Uh, in some cases, the highest rate of suicide. Mm. Luckily, we've been pretty pretty good there, but just across the board at universities around the world. As much as social media can create connections between people, it also sometimes makes people it feel is. lonely. Yeah. One of the principles of design is empathy and learning how to really understand you. But there's a the dark side of that is really learning how to manipulate you mm. to keep you scrolling, to keep yeah. you moving, you know, to keep you Addicted to keep you to. on the app. Mm -hmm. And so those those apps monetize your attention. That's their goal. So their designers are really trying to make it addictive. Yeah. And at the same time, it's really not healthy. I also teach the ethics module in our program. One of the case studies I use is that. Like I'm you're a designer and social media yeah. and you're trying to design this thing to be highly addictive. Yeah. But you know that if if people are highly addicted to this app that they're scrolling doom scrolling all the time, the things that the algorithms select are yeah. sensational and horrible and, you know, yeah. you know, whatever controversial. So you know that you're you're having a negative impact on someone's mental health. Is that ethical? Bill, so what is the worst and perhaps the most dangerous advice that you've heard? Well, you and I were talking about there's just two questions I really don't like that adults ask kids, yeah. you know, or even, you know, young, young, as you're going off to college or whatever. The first one is, what do you want to be when you grow up? And although it's not, it's not a bad question, the question, every question comes with a point of view, right? This point of view is when you grow up, you're done. Mm. Now you're a banker or a lawyer or something, end. and that's mm -hmm. it. You don't have to worry about it anymore. But that's not how life works. And, and actually, that would be horrible. If I rephrase the question, if growing up means you're no longer curious, you're no longer learning, you're no longer changing and, and, and growing into the person you want to become, then that's a dumb question. I, don't want, I never want to grow up is my answer. And I probably, had never, I probably never did. I was always the kid who didn't pay attention in school kind of and it was always daydreaming or doodling or something so that question 
the reframe is what do you want to be what do you want to grow into you know as your life unfolds because what i wanted to be at 18 isn't what i wanted to be at 30 which mm -hmm. isn't what i wanted to be at 45 or 50 right yeah. and and once you have children and kids your life changes so this whole idea of growing up being a fixed you know end point it's just it's, i think it's destructive the one that really i notice my students are just young people struggling with is someone will say well you know what you should do Rachel, you should follow your passion. Mm. And you're 18 or 19, and you go, well, I don't, I don't have a passion. I don't really have. I, I don't mean, know what. Or my I don't know what my passion is. Or I got lots of things I'm passionate about. Exactly. Which one should I pick? You know, mm. I, I, I care about climate change. I care about social justice. I care about women's issues. So we go back to research, and there's a wonderful researcher at Stanford, Bill Damon, and he wrote a book called Path to Purpose because he studied this. He studies adolescence, and in his his research has been other people have come to the same conclusion. But 20% of the people have a passion they can identify early in their lives that, that turns out to be, you know, useful. And 80% of the people don't. Mm. So I hate a question. You know, like, get in line. Okay, 8 out of 10 people, uh, you don't have a passion, go stand over there. Yeah. When you have a passion, come back and I'll help you. It's like, well, that's horrible. Yeah. If, if 8 out of 10 people can't answer the question, but, but the question comes from an adult, so you think, well, I'm supposed to know the answer. You feel bad, mm -hmm. and then and then feeling that sort of sets you back on your journey rather than helps you go forward. So, look, Dave and I are all for living passionately, living into you know your life and designing it so that it's always new and different, and you and you discover your passion. There's other research a guy named Cal Newport, and his thing was like passions emerge after you've gotten good at something, or passions emerge as you develop into the mature adult that you become, yeah. and you realize where your strengths are, yeah. where your where your goals become more clear. Even neuroscience, you don't form a full prefrontal cortex till your late twenties. Yes. Men much later, so don't don't marry any man under thirty. By the way, because his prefrontal cortex is still not underdeveloped. Yeah, it's under. Yeah, his his, his ability to make good choices not 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 so good at <laughs> under 30 oh. so we know that we don't really build into our full adult self until our mid 30s so asking an 18 year old to follow their passion and making them feel like there's something wrong with them the 20% of people who say they have a passion that typically shows up in the arts i'm passionate about singing i'm passionate about dancing i want to be a ballerina i want to be a dancer i want to be a sound. i'm an artist i'm a, I'm a designer I'm a, and we discourage those kids because we say Oh well, that's not a real thing. That's not a real career. The artist, you can't you can get a good living. Can't make a good living doing that. So even the kids who have a passion, they get discouraged. Feel like they're doing something yeah. wrong. Wow. And it's only the ones that can persist, or the ones that have wonderful, amazing parents who say, "You know, if that's what you want to do, we'll let we'll, let's see what happens. Yeah. Let's, let's go for it." Bill, I also want to expand further on what you talked about. You know, if following your passion is a bad advice and dangerous advice, which I completely agree with. I think discovering our passion is, for me, a lifelong project, yeah. right? It's a constant exploration, experiment. Right. Then what should the advice be for the young people today or for just us as well? Dave and I have been talking about this a lot because we're starting to think about maybe there's another book that's even bigger than Designing Your Life. The advice of follow your passion or what do you want to be when you grow up or pick one thing and you know and then you're and then you you know if you get to this thing you've accomplished your life mm. and you're successful this is all what we call it's kind of in the transactional do the right thing and you'll end up in the right place but that's not the way 
life works. Life is a process. Like you say, it's a process. I mm. want to grow into and find my passions. I want to I want to be curious. Curiosity is a process. I'm curious about lots of things and then and then people teach me lots of stuff and I and then I find that's really interesting. Now I'm curious about these other things mm. <laughs> because as soon as I learn one thing, I'm curious about the next. With all of these questions or any kind of a, you know, an either or choice, you know, Work-life balance. You can have work or you can have life. What's the choice? You know, meaning or money? You can have meaning right. or money. All of these. It's a binary. All of these binaries. They're just not true. Life is a process. It's there's no work-life balance. It's just life-life. There's life at work and how you show up at work and what you learn and how you contribute, and there's life in your world with your maybe your, your partner or family or your your community. So learn to live in the process world, where everything is is unfolding mm -hmm. and get out of this transaction world where it's like win lose you know a b black white what i think we've been able to do in some of the books is just name this process put a little framework around it mm -hmm. help people understand it yeah because i think a lot of people kind of feel this way but they're not encouraged to think they're encouraged to think well you'll be judged by how much money you make or yeah. you'll be judged by how important your job is. Yeah. And then I meet these people in my workshops and they're they're really sad and unhappy because they, there's no there's no value in just money and status. All the research says you, that money and status will not make you happy. Yeah. Happiness comes from relationships, it comes inside yes. out, it's not outside in. Yes. I don't care what other people tell me about my life. Yeah. If I don't feel it, it then it, it then it doesn't matter. I think what you're saying is also so relevant and related to, you know, even books or articles like The Five Regrets of the Dying, where the right. top regret is, you know, I never got to live the life that I wanted. I've always lived the life that people expected or society expected of me. You will never see in the top five things, of, you know, of regrets. regrets of dying, boy, I wish I'd made more money. David Brooks, who's the columnist in the New York Times, has yeah. a thing about eulogy virtues versus resume virtues. At your eulogy, after you die, when all your friends are standing there and saying nice things about you, don't you hope they say something like, well, Rachel was a kind person and she helped people and she really was dedicated to this idea of creating communities that were healthy and supportive? Or do you want people to say, yeah, Rachel made a lot of money and she was always on time for her meetings and her PowerPoint presentations were really good. Now, who wants that? Mm. That's a terrible eulogy, mm. you know? Yeah, Bill showed up on time and he did good PowerPoints. No, I want them to say I was a good father. I want them mm. to say I was a friend. I want them to say, you know, I was there when they needed me. So nobody ever says, you know, in the mm. five regrets, anything about status or yeah. real estate or money. Yeah. Or material possessions. Or power. Mm -hmm. It makes me crazy is that you know, somebody makes a lot of money and then all of a sudden we want to know what they think about everything. So, you know, Elon makes, Musk makes a lot of money. Now we want to know what he thinks about politics. I think he may be smart about cars and rockets, but I don't know whether he knows anything about politics. And I think, Bill, it's also really about reframing our minds and perspectives to what's really important at the end of the day. What is your definition of a successful life? Most of the time people get stuck on problems and they don't realize you could just change the problem and then kind of unlock new solutions, new, new possibilities. So this idea of reframing. So you reframe from status to relationships. Yeah. You reframe from money to love. Mm -hmm. but then you got to do transactional things. You got to buy your groceries. You got to you know you know go to school, get your grades. That's fine. But you reframe from transactional things to process things like being in flow, or being in you know being in the field of love and and generosity. Those are the things that will make a life meaningful. Mm. So Robert Waldinger uh, yes. just did a wonderful TED Talk. 
on the, the Harvard study, which is this 95-year-old study. study. And they're going to continue it on now with the children and the grandchildren of the first people they studied. And they studied everything. Back in the 50s, they were sure it was IQ. IQ would predict success and longevity. No correlation. You know, in the 70s and 80s, they thought it would be education and status, but no correlation to longevity. The thing that correlates to longevity, living a happy life, living a meaningful life, and actually living longer and being healthy longer, relationships. Relationships, relationships. Who do, you, who do you love? Who loves you? How is your family? What do you do for people other than yourself? What we're trying to do is get people to change their mindset from a mindset of scarcity. Like, I just gotta, I just gotta get all I can get yeah. for me because yeah. there's not enough. There's always a winner and right. loser. Right, the winner and loser yeah. for the mindset of abundance. There's yes. enough for everybody. All we have to do is, is participate. And there's always more than one way. There's always three or more. And if you start with the mindset of curiosity, you'll discover things that you didn't even know were there. Mm. What is one key skill or characteristic that you think is ever so important, even more so now? I think it's the growth mindset coupled with you know, curiosity. Mm. And then tenacity or grit or something else like, don't give up on yourself. Yeah, resilience. It's not going to be easy. One of the reasons everybody does what they're supposed to do is that's the easy path. Mm. Go to school, get a good job, Less get a friction. job at the bank, mm. you know, get promoted three times, you know, buy, buy a nice car. You know, it's like, it, it's, not, it's not hard. I mean, it's hard, but it's not, it's the obvious path. And when you step off of that path, you're taking a certain amount of risk. Mm. And um, it's going to be a little more bumpy, maybe, than the straight path. Although, I'm telling you, in the straight path, now with, you know, Companies restructuring and people getting laid off. I'm not sure the straight path is any riskier, less mm -hmm. risky than the than your personal path. Yeah. Once you have a growth mindset and you ask questions about what's going on, it inevitably leads you to to you know pick slightly different things as you go, mm. and it only takes a small amount of you know change in your mm. course to end up you know 20 years later in a really new place. For my students and certainly and even for people in their like the mid career workshops in their 30s and 40s who are thinking of pivoting, I go. Don't you hope that 10 years from now you're doing something that you could never even imagined? Like, I'm doing something now I could never even imagined. And it's so much more interesting than the dumb ideas I had <laughs> of what I thought was going to happen. Oh, well, stubborn to, you know, to, yeah. to yeah. hold on too tightly to. Yeah, or to hold on too tightly. So, one, there's, there's the obvious path, and it seems like it's the, it's, it's the less risky, but it's not really because you might give up your soul. <laughs> and that's pretty risky. And then there's the other path, which is more your path, right? The way that can be followed. That will be certainly more interesting. Mm. <laughs> and and if you and it does require some self introspection. I just did a program, HCLI, the group that we're partnering with, and there was a speaker before me, and, and he said that, and he's been a you know 20 year veteran at Microsoft, 20 year veteran at, mm. at Autodesk, big business guy. But he wrote this book about his own personal journey, and someone asked him, well, what's the most important characteristic of a CEO? And he said, self awareness. I, I think it's the most important characteristic of a human because mm. self, I mean, self awareness. If you work on your own self awareness, you realize your faults, you realize your strengths, you but you see yourself as a, as a whole human, right? Mm. And, and he said, for a CEO, self-awareness is the number one characteristic because that's how the CEO grows yeah. and grows the organization. One of the reasons, you know, Bill, um, you're such a huge inspiration to me is because you really live out what you teach and preach. I think at this stage of your life, for example, you could have easily, you know, 
enjoy life in the sense of like, you know, retire, enjoy time with your grandkids, but you still choose to constantly push boundaries to constantly, whether is it your personal boundaries or professional boundaries to see what else can you give to the world to make an impact? What keeps you going? I mean, I'm at the age where I have some friends who are retiring and and I'm saying, what are you going to do? And they go, I don't know. It's like, that's like... I can't. I can't even imagine. I, I learn so much, and I get so much joy out of being in a classroom, trying to teach people how to think about design and design amazing things, design you know fantastic new computers or whatever. So that's a never-ending story because now, I mean, when I started in design, we were still on drafting tables and making you know parts, and now you can <laughs> now you can I can build something on a laptop, print it on a 3D printer, have it in have it in a store, and you know in a day. So it's just the, the way the technology has advanced our ability to, to think and design. You know, now, we're, now with these new AI engines and these language models, we can, we can really accelerate human creativity. There's a guy who wrote a book, James Kars, called Finite and Infinite Games. And I'm playing the infinite game. The infinite game is the game you play, and when the game, becomes, when the game starts to end, you change the rules wow. to keep the game going. And, you know, an infinite game is love. An infinite game is learning. Yeah. An infinite game is curiosity. Because as soon as I learn about something, there's an, I change the rules and find something else to learn about. I do have a grandchild and a granddaughter on, on the way soon. in the next month or so. Raising children was so much fun and so hard and tiring. Mm. And now grandchildren, I'm, you know, that's a whole other game yeah. right, to play. It's a different role. It's a whole different role. So I, I love finding all these new roles. And um, even when I think I kind of got a handle on stuff, stuff's changing so fast now. People ask me, well, what's going to happen to designers with AI? I go, I don't know. I think designers will be the people who embrace it and use it to amplify human creativity. Mm. Because that's that's fundamentally what I'm doing, what we're trying to do at the institute, and what Mark and I are trying to do is, is um, help people with their creative confidence, so that they, everybody feels like they have creativity they can draw on mm -hmm. to make a better life. And you know, Bill, you have also throughout um, you know your career have built great products. What are some of the key principles you know uh, that? through the experience that you've had as a product designer yeah. that you think are so relevant uh, to bring into um, yeah. helping someone else build their own lives. I love designing physical things because then when you're done, you have a thing, right? Yeah. A lot of my students are doing digital design, which is great. It's, it's, you know, it's another way of expressing yourself. But I remember I did a bunch of projects, but then when I went to Apple and we did, I did my first project at Apple and I ended up in, in the factory and this thing we had designed... You know, there was a, a production line that was you know, as far as you could see. Mm -hmm. And then you walked into a warehouse and there were, you know, boxes on pallets, hundreds of boxes on pallets of this product. And I thought, wow, we did, my team did that. And, and millions of people are going to use that. And maybe it's going to make their job better or their whatever better. So I see students graduating from designing your life classes. And they have confidence, and they have a plan, mm. and they know how to prototype stuff. And they're thinking much more broadly than they used to be. They're not just you know, going down the default path that their parents wanted or they wanted or somebody told them they should do. Now, instead of walking into a factory and seeing you know, products you know, coming off a production line, I get to see people, which are more interesting, yes. um, who have adopted a mindset that I think will help them in their life. So the mindsets are curiosity. And we talked about that already. Radical collaboration, because the answer is in the world with people. you got to be with people. That's where relationships are created. 
um, reframing, that idea of don't get stuck on a problem, change the problem, right? Bias to action because action is what gets the whole system going. Bill, you know, when, especially for yourself, when you're constantly recreating your path and your life, have you ever felt fearful? Oh, yeah. And what happens? What do you do? I think fear is the number one thing that holds people back, right? They're afraid to be different or afraid it won't work. Well, I get nervous all the time when I have to talk or something or when I have to do a class. Cause, and it's just because it's just a, a... Even after all those years? Yeah, it's just a reaction. Mm. But, but I, don't, I don't pay any attention to it. Mm. So it just, it, it just it goes away. There have been times, particularly this project in Singapore, where I thought, well, this isn't going to work or it's mm. going to be too hard. Or people say they want to support us but they don't they're not they're not really going to come through but none of that's turned out to be true so what i notice is that most of my fears if i really take a look at them if i have self awareness mm-hmm. most of my fears um are made up and one technique uh, uh, a therapist taught me was um she said well all right so um i want you to i want you to sit down and in 10 minutes write down what's all the worst things that could happen what's the worst thing that could happen on this project, what's the worst thing that could happen with this problem you're having? And really, I mean, really write down the yeah, most extreme worst, worst thing that you can do. And you write that list and you write it all out and you kind of, I think that the goal uh, in this, that exercise is just exhaust all the possibilities. So there's, you're not just, you know, constantly thinking something bad's gonna happen. All right, this could happen, this could happen, there's a lot of money, I could, I, you know, people, I could be embarrassed, I could, I could hurt a lot of people who thought that was gonna work and it didn't. So you write them all down and then you look at it and uh, almost 100% of the time you go, well, first of all, that's not that bad. And second of all, that's not going to happen. Mm. And so that's been helpful for me to kind of calm my fears. I'm a big scaredy cat. I was, I, was, I was the shy kid on the playground. I was the last kid to get picked for the team. I always fear that I'm not going to be accepted or something. But, you know, I also know that that's, that was me when I was 9 or 10. That's not me now. Mm. Right. I, I no longer describe myself as a shy person. And what you shared really reminded me of, you know, this exercise that Tim Ferriss says we all should do. It's besides goal setting, which a lot of us talk a lot about, but it's right. also fear setting where, like you said, writing down what are the worst things or scenarios yeah, that can yeah, happen. I've, I've heard him and, talk about that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that is absolutely useful as well. And before we end, Bill, I wanted to also ask you, you know, what is perhaps an advice that you have for those of us who are looking to recreate or reinvent our lives, we may be stuck, we may be fearful, we, may, we know that we're settling or we know that we've got so much more to give but we just don't know where to start. Right. What is the advice that you have for us? The way you start is pick something really simple. The, the whole theme in the second book is set the bar low. Everybody's trying to be amazing and everything else, and that's fine, but you get to amazing by starting out doing something really simple. If you look at the psychology of behavior change, if people want to lose weight or they want to get in shape or they want to run a marathon, if you try to do something too big, it won't work because you know if you say, okay, it's January, January 1, my, I'm going to run a marathon this year, nothing you can do in the next three months looks anything like a marathon because you're not even doing 10,000 steps on your phone yet. So <laughs> you got to break it down into simple things. It's good to have a, a goal, like I want to change the world, but, but how do I change the world? Well, first I got to change myself. Okay, mm-hmm. well, how do I change myself? Well, all right, I'm going to start eating healthier. I'm going to do more. I'm going to walk more. I'm going to do something. So w- we know from 
you know, the science of studying thousands and thousands of people and how they actually make change happen. Get rid of the negative triggers. Mm. Break it into small tasks. Reward yourself every time you complete something. Don't beat yourself up because you're only going to complete 80% of the tasks you set anyway, so don't beat yourself up. That's the statistic. If you, if you do six or seven out of ten, you're awesome. Mm. Our colleague at Stanford, B.J. Fogg, wrote a book uh, called Tiny Habits. And I think there's another book that's out there called Atomic Habits, which yeah, are also tiny. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, follow that advice because it's really good. It's mm. really good research. During COVID, my wife and I were not, we're pretty sedentary and we weren't doing anything. We thought, this isn't good. We want to be mobile and, you know, vigorous when we get older. Um, we hired a, a nutritional coach and a, and a physical coach and, and they all said the same thing. We're going to start really slow. And show me your phone. Bill, you're doing you're not even doing four thousand steps. Let's let's see if we can get to five. Let's see mm. if we can get to ten. Let's see if we can get to fifteen. Start you know. small, set the bottles, celebrate yeah. the small win. Yeah. Do the Tim Ferriss exercise on your Fear fears. Setting. Mm. You know, uh Carl Jung, the psychologist was, I think his his biggest contribution to psychology was there's your personality and then there's your shadow side. There's always the negative. And until you integrate the negative and the positive together, you're not wholly a person. Wow. So accept your negative, accept your shadow. Everybody, yeah. you, you can't get rid of it. This has been so great. Thank you so much for your generosity in sharing your wisdom as well. And thank you most importantly for the work that you do, especially now in our part of the world and in Singapore. We're yeah. so excited uh, to see how we can learn more from you as well. So where can we find you on social media or on your website? Yeah, so the website for the Institute is simple. It's designingyourlife.institute. Um, in Singapore. The Stanford um, site where we run our lab and our research stuff is just, I think it's just called uh, designingyourlife.stanford.edu or something like that. Mark and I are starting a TikTok channel, so we'll wow, figure that out. Wow, I love your... When we this go. is truly yeah. a growth mindset. Yeah, and then um, you know we'll we'll be we'll be on social media a little bit, but don't do on social media too much. <laughs> Make sure you keep a healthy brain. Yes, time box. Yeah, time but box. yeah, Bill, thank you so much, and I hope that you have enjoyed the episode as much as I did. I think even though I've had so many different conversations with Bill, there's always something um, that I always walk away with and take away with. So. Once again, you know, we would love to hear what are some of your key takeaways. You know, comment below and like, share and subscribe. Uh, and stay tuned because, you know, Bill and I, together with your Designing a Life Institute in Singapore, will be planning some workshops. Absolutely. Especially for the Rich Reflex yeah. community. So, yeah. till then, any last words for everyone? Well, first of all, you're so kind and you're, and you're always so nice to me. So, thank you so much. The words are, everybody deserves to design a good life a well-lived joyful life and it's it's not hard it's just about you know like take that first small step <laughs>